to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, if you'll make the effort to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, whether in your own Bible, uh, maybe on a Bible app on your phone, or even in one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew, uh, if you'll turn over there, I think the entire lesson, save for one passage, comes from the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be focusing primarily on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Thank you for being here this afternoon and especially those who are visiting with us. We're grateful for your presence, your participation uh, in this study, and then also in, in our worship. And we pray that God has been pleased with the things that we've said and done here this afternoon. Uh, who in here has ever been in a class that also had an attached lab? So you were in a class, but there was also a lab that went with it. That's an experience many of us have had, and the idea behind that is you learn what you need to learn in the classroom in theory, and then apply it in a real-life sort of way in a controlled environment in the lab. And even if you've not been in a class with a lab, maybe you've been in a, in a kind of class, maybe an ag mechanics class or something along those lines, where you spend time in a classroom and then in a controlled environment you go and you make application to the things that you've learned, and hopefully, the end result of all of that is, when you do go out into the real world and have to do these things yourself, you've learned them and applied them and are ready then to make greater application to other situations. Well, I want to make a, a similar sort of uh, comparison this, this uh, afternoon. I want to suggest that this morning and the things we studied this morning was like uh, the classroom lecture, defining and teaching and making some applications as we talked about being rooted and grounded in God-like love. And if you weren't here this morning, what we did is we just walked through the text of 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and we learned these six things about God's love. And if we're going to understand God and if we're going to make right application to love, God is love. And so this is what his love looks like from that same passage. It's open, it's active, it's sacrificial, it's selfless, it's undeserved, and ultimately it's spiritually focused on the spiritual well-being and good of the people that God loves. But tonight, what I'd like to do is take us to the lab, where we apply these things that we learned this morning about God's love to some real-world um, applications, real-world problems in a controlled environment. Let's put this concept of being rooted and grounded in God-like love, let's put it in the lab, in the controlled environment of the church in Corinth, and specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 13. God-like love in our lives is three things as it pertains to be, being rooted and grounded. And I think we see these three things in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. God-like love is, first of all, foundational. Uh, there are dozens of passages that we could quote along that point, that this is foundational for all other aspects of Christian life and teaching. Uh, at the beginning of the month, we spent quite a bit of time in Matthew chapter 22, remember? That we're supposed to, the two greatest commands... Love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourselves. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. But the Apostle Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you'll read with me there, beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. This foundation of God-like love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass, 
or a clanging cymbal. Um, I was trying to take a nap this afternoon, and uh, Mishaya and Connor, um, her fiancé, were, were over at the house. They were working on something, uh, and they were borrowing some tools of mine, and they kept going in and out of the garage, and the door would close, and the door would close, and the door would close. And, and that's, you know, a little no- annoying. And I was thinking about this passage because... I was thinking about this passage because I'd been preparing for my lesson, and I thought, that's kind of that clanging brass, clanging cymbal. It's just like bang, bang, bang. There's no music. There's no rhythm. There's no pleasure to that. It's just annoying. And when we are trying to act in such a way that we have all of these gifts and we can do all these things, but if there's no love behind it, that's, that's all it is to God. It's not pleasurable to Him. It doesn't please Him. Verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, well, now we're just about quoting Jesus and what great faith is, but have not love, I am nothing. Uh, We place a great emphasis on knowledge and wisdom and understanding, and that knowledge and wisdom and understanding are supposed to lead to our faith. And we place an emphasis on that because the Bible places an emphasis on that but ladies and gentlemen hear me clearly if we understand everything correctly we make right application and we believe in God because of those things we understand if we do not have love what does he say I am nothing and then perhaps uh, most amazingly is verse 3 and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor well Jesus said that's one of the primary basis Basis on which we're going to be judged, right? Have I, have I given a cup of cold water to the poor? Have I visited those who are sick and in prison? Have I done those sorts of things? Well, I can do that, and even though I give my body to be burned, even if I am killed because of my faith, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, there's some debate about whether Somebody would actually do all of those things if they didn't have love. But I think Paul's point is well taken. This is how foundational, this is how important true God-like love is. And if we don't have love, then we've missed the boat on everything else. But it's not just that this love is foundational. It is also inspirational. Love causes us to do things that we didn't think were possible. Grand acts of sacrifice and service and devotion. He ends this same chapter down in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abide or continue faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Greater even than our faith, greater even than our hope is love. Love inspires us to do incredible things. Uh, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Love motivates us to make those kinds of sacrifices for others. And now the the one passage I was going to ask you to turn to besides in 1 Corinthians is 1 John chapter 3. And of course, we were in 1 John chapter 4 this morning as we looked at God's love and what the love of God looks like. But in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 14, notice what he says in verse 14. We know that we, as Christians, have passed from death to life, from expecting spiritual death, being separated from God, to spiritual life in fellowship with God, because 
we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And then there's a little play on words in verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And again, he's not literally saying, if I hate my brother, I'm going to go out and you know stab him and kill him. That's not the point. The point is, still talking about spiritual life and spiritual death, if my hatred of my brother causes him or my sister causes her to stumble, either way, then what am I if not a murderer? I have committed spiritual murder if it's going to cause them uh, if it's going to cause them to sin and keep them from their God. And so what's the contrast? Verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's big. Okay, I get it. I have to love my brother. But to give my life for him? I'm uncomfortable with that. I think I've told you that before. Uh, there are some that I think about, brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'd say, sure, I'd give my life for them. Others, others would be a little harder. But that's the degree of my love, or at least it's supposed to be, that I'll forfeit my goods, my feelings, my time, my rights, even my life for them, for their spiritual good, as we saw down there in chapter 4 and verse 10, for what is best for them spiritually. But it isn't just the big things. It isn't just these big inspirational, give your life sort of things. Uh, if this point, the second point, inspirational, is like taking your wife on a really nice trip for your anniversary, the next point is kind of like washing the dishes over and over and over again because you love her. Because love is not just inspirational to these grand acts. It's also motivational. Love keeps us going when all other motivations have failed. Guilt and fear and pain and punishment and hope and gratitude and debt and responsibility. Those are all fine and good motivators, necessary motivators. But they cannot keep us going forever without love. Love is the fuel that does not burn out. And love is found not just in the grand gestures, but in the daily duties performed because of that love. Why did Daniel pray three times a day all of his life? When it gets right, right down to it, it's because he loved God. Why did Paul write letter after letter to the churches and year after year he traveled the world in such difficult circumstances? When it gets right down to it, it's because he loved God and loved the brethren. And Paul says at the end of the book of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 14, let all you do be done with love. All of our actions spring from this fountainhead. But again, the church in Corinth is our lab for these thoughts. And the problem was in Corinth, they were doing lots and lots of things not in love, and they were not doing lots and lots of things they should be doing because of a lack of love. And so they had all of these issues in the church. Love was not their primary motivator. If you ask me what it was, it's pride and self-seeking. That was what was motivating them to do the things they were doing. And it's in that context that he writes what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. So if you want to turn back there, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. These are the daily displays of God-like, Christ-like love. Uh, that should be motivated because of our love for God. 
So 1 Corinthians 13, begin reading in verse 4. You're probably familiar with these verses. Let's see if we can look at them with fresh eyes tonight. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Now we read through that list of what love is, and maybe it's surprising to us. Is it odd to you that there are so many negative things in a list about love? Uh, We talk about how Christianity is not just, you know, don't do bad things, but it's also do good things. And we think about love, surely love is one of those things where we would emphasize and say there are all these good things we're supposed to be doing, but the Apostle Paul, he has eight things that love isn't, that love does not do. But don't lose heart, brethren, because he shows great balance. Because there are not just eight things that love is not, that love does not do. There are also eight things that love is, that love does, that love is intended to be. Uh, This is not a random list. I don't believe that. Um, It's not a complete list in all of the qualities of love either. Instead, Paul is going through the issues and problems that the church in Corinth were having and showing that every one of these problems, every single one of the issues with the church in Corinth are at least in large part due to a lack of love. Their problem was that in the day-to-day interactions between brethren, there just wasn't enough love. And if you ask them, If you were to go to the church in Corinth and poll the congregation, do you love your brethren? They'd probably say, yes, of course we do. And Paul's saying, if you love your brethren, then why are you jealous of each other's gifts? Why are you prideful in your own? Why don't you show humility and deference to one another? Why do you despise the poor brethren and look down on them? Why don't you allow yourself to be defrauded? Why are you fighting about things that don't matter eternally? Why don't you discipline sinful brethren? Why don't you give up your rights for your brother's conscience? We are no longer dealing with these abstract qualities of what God's love is like. And hopefully we made some practical applications this morning. But this evening we're dealing with the nitty gritty. I mean, we are down in the muck and the mire where we live. This is day to day stuff. And so too for us, may I suggest that any division, any falling out, any ongoing issues that we have as brethren comes back at least in large part to a lack of love. A lack of love for God, lack of love for the truth, lack of love for each other, whatever else we want to add to that list. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and these 16 things, 8 positive, 8 negative together. And for each one of these, there's a negative a positive, and an example from the church in Corinth that we can look to for each of these things. So, love does not envy. That's the first one in the negative list, and we'll go by the negative, and we'll just put the positive out beside it. And maybe you don't agree with me on all of these, uh, but hopefully you see the concept here of, like, so, like he so often did, and like the Holy Spirit so often does, Paul is saying, you've got to quit doing this, you've got to start doing that, 
And here's an application of what that looks like. Love does not envy. Instead, love hopes all things. And I think a great example of this in the church in Corinth is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on any of these, but I do want to kind of equip you to think about it in these really practical terms. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning there in verse 3. For you are still carnal, he says to them. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? You're not showing love. You're viewing things the way the rest of the world looks at it. It's fleshly. It's carnal. Then he says, verse 5, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Love hopes all things. So here's my question. What was Paul's hope for the work of Apollos? What did he want for Apollos and his work? He wanted him to have great success. And Paul could have been envious. It is very clear from the Scriptures between the two who the better speaker was, who the more dynamic and eloquent speaker was. It was Apollos. But Paul's attitude was not one of envy. Instead, he hopes all things. He wanted the very best for Apollos. And so too for us, when we love, we should hope all things for that person and about that person. Envy hopes for the worst for somebody else, right? If I'm envious of that person, it's not just jealousy that I see somebody else and I'm jealous and I wish I had what they had. Envy takes it a step further. Envy says, I'll see what they have, I wish I had it, and if I had my choice, I would take it away from them so that I could have it myself. What Paul says is, that's not love. It's not the kind of love that Apollos and I show with one another, so why should you have this kind of attitude of envy among yourselves that is causing this division? Love says, good for them. I'm happy for them. I want them to do well. And I hope in all things that they're serving God and that God blesses them. That's what love looks like. The second thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love does not parade itself. Other translations says it does not boast or brag. May I suggest the opposite of that is that it bears, or some translation says, love conceals all things. And a great example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you want to turn over there, this idea of parading yourself uh, is seen really clearly in regard to these uh, miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that they had in speaking in tongues, in prophesying. So 1 Corinthians 14, uh, let's go down to verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Apparently what was happening in the church in Corinth was in their pride and in their boasting, everybody was wanting to be a part of the assembly. And so they were saying, I've got a tongue, I've got a revelation, and there was this parade of people saying, what I have to say is more important than what anybody else has to say. And what is Paul's reaction to that? Verse 27, 
If anyone speaks in a tongue, it's supposed to be building up others, remember? So if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. What is that if not concealing, covering uh, the things that, that I might take pride in and boast about? Love says I can keep it to myself. I don't need everyone to know how awesome I am. I don't have to take the credit for every single thing. I don't have to be the center of attention. I'm not going to parade myself. Instead, I'm willing to bear and conceal uh, these things, even that I might have a temptation to take pride in. That's what love does. Number three, love is not puffed up. Maybe yours says it is not prideful, it is not arrogant. Uh, endures all things is what I would put as the opposite of this, and a great example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So we had boasting and bragging, now we have uh, the mindset of arrogance, pride, being puffed up. Uh, and that same phrase, being puffed up, is found there in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Everybody has some knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That's a nice uh, play on words. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It edifies. Knowledge puffing up, who does it puff up? It puffs up me. Edification, who does that build up? It builds up somebody else. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything... He knows nothing yet as he ought to know. If my attitude is this prideful, arrogant, puffed-up attitude, I know everything and you don't, that's not really love. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And so even here in chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul is making the connection to love. This arrogant attitude, that's not love. And don't think that God is really going to know you if that's your attitude. And specifically, this is in regard to uh, the eating of meats. And there were some brethren who rightly understood that that meat that had been, sec sold, uh, that had been sacrificed to idols and then later sold in the marketplace, it was just meat. It wasn't a big deal. But there were others whose conscience were bothered by that. And they didn't have that same knowledge, or at least they didn't make that same application. And there were other people who were looking down on them. How, how, how dumb are these people? You know, they think that meat is something, that that meat means anything. And that arrogance in their knowledge um, made it to where they couldn't endure with their brethren. Can I endure with my brethren's weakness? This is what Paul says, the links to which we should go to do that. Verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I don't know about you, but giving up meat would be a big deal for me. I think it was probably a big deal for Paul as well. But he's showing this is what love does. Now, obviously, that can be abused. That can be abused by the one who is the weaker party, by the one who doesn't have the knowledge. You have to do this because I say you have to do this. Obviously, that can be abused, but that's, 
That's one of the realities of love, isn't it? That, that love opens us up to some of those abuses by others. And I'm not saying that we have to put up with that. Instead, what we should do is we should teach, we should go to the Word of God and say, this is the way it is. But in the meantime, my attitude should be such that I am not puffed up and prideful and arrogant. Instead, I'm willing to endure some things, even not eating meat, if it's going to be helpful to my brother or sister in Christ. And even if I know better, even if in my, in my heart of hearts I think, it's stupid, I have to do this. I am not so arrogant that I can't endure inconvenience for my brother. Because that's what love does. Number four, love does not behave rudely. Uh, I would put on the other side of that that love never fails, love never ends. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is in the context of what we call the Lord's Supper. And in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Well, it was. That's why they came together. But Paul's point is, you might call it the Lord's Supper, but it ain't the Lord's Supper. It might be your supper that you've made for yourselves, but it's not the Lord's Supper because of what they were doing. Verse 21, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame? ESV says humiliate. And that's really what that word means. Those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. This is, among other things, rude behavior, is it not? And when our actions are rude toward one another, when it is manifested not just in our thoughts or in our attitudes, but in the actual behavior that we have toward one another, where we're rude to one another, then love has failed. Love is gone. But true godlike love does not allow us to act like this, to act with rudeness toward especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love, the love that comes from God, the love that is like God, the love that shows, that is sacrificial, that is selfless, that is considering the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that kind of love is not supposed to fail. And this is a great test of the kind of love that we have toward our brethren. If we cannot bring ourselves to not be rude toward our brothers and sisters, then that means that we don't have the love of God. Because the love of God is not going to fail in that way. And so we need to be careful that we're not behaving rudely. Uh, that's a low bar, it seems like, isn't it? And yet at the same time, have we not all seen, maybe even personally experienced, Christians acting in rude ways toward one another? May it never be. May it never be among us. May it never be among God's people. Love does not behave rudely. Number five, love does not seek its own. Uh, other translations say it does not insist on its own way. The opposite of that is that love is kind. And I think 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a great example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me but not all things edify. 
Now, there are a number of ways that we can take what Paul says here. I'm not going to go through all of the options of what exactly he's saying because I think we get the gist of this. Just because maybe I can do something doesn't mean that I should do that thing, right? Verse 24, he makes application, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Instead of it being all about me and insisting on my way and this is what I want, kindness is all about the other person. What can I do for them instead of insisting on my own way? Now, it's a, a far different thing, don't misunderstand me, if we're insisting on God's way, right? If we're insisting on this is Bible truth, this is what we must do. It's a far different thing to do that than to me say, well, this is what I think we ought to do, this is what I think we should do, this is what I'm going to do, and insisting on that to the point that I'm making other people to do that as well. That's, that's not kind because it's about me and seeking my own instead of the other's well-being. Kindness looks to the other and says, what is best for them? Uh, number six, love is not provoked, some translations say. Some say irritable. Others say it is not easily provoked, and that's probably the right one. This is a very direct, very easy to connect um, mirror of the positive idea of love suffering long. And the great example of that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. That word contentions there is the idea of that you're, you're getting in fights with one another. Maybe not with blows, not physical fights, but you're quarreling, you're arguing, you're losing your temper with one another. And so that's that idea of, okay, I'm, I'm losing my temper, I'm provoked by what this other person says. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You can almost imagine how this went down in the church in Corinth, can't you? Uh, well, I think we ought to do this. Well, why do you think you ought to do that? Well, because I am of Paul, and Paul taught me, and I know what I'm talking about. Well, you're a Paul. I'm of Cephas, and, and I think we should do this. Oh, I got one better than all y'all. I am of Christ. And so in order to try and work these things out, it was clear that these brethren were quarreling. They're losing their temper in their arguments with one another. Uh, we don't do a whole lot of that at the church building. Uh, maybe we don't even do just a whole lot of that with our brethren in general, but sometimes we do that with brethren like our spouse or brethren like our parents or our children. When we have those closest of relationships, that's a lot of times when this really comes into play. And we want to build ourselves up and say, this, these are my qualifications for this decision and why I think we ought to do that. We want to tear the other person down. That's not what love does. The people that we usually get in fights with like that are the people who know how to push all of our buttons. They know where those buttons are. They know exactly how to push them. They know how to provoke us. And if we're not careful, we probably know where to push their buttons too to provoke them back. 
And all of us in relationships are going to have those moments. You know what love does? Love is not easily provoked. Instead, love suffers long. Sometimes there's some confusion about this idea of suffering long. You look at the word long-suffering, that's an easy definition. You suffer for a long time, right? Well, that's not exactly what the New Testament word is talking about. That's part of it, but we all know people who have suffered for years and years and years, but I wouldn't exactly call them long-suffering in their attitude through those things. Uh, The Greek word is actually helpful to us here. It's not always helpful to look at the Greek, but in this case, perhaps it is. It is macrothumia. Macro is the idea of long, and thumia is the idea of of, uh, hot, especially passion or anger. So you are long to anger, long to passion. So long-suffering is that quality of self-restraint even in the face of provocation, even when somebody is pushing your buttons, where you do not hastily retaliate, you don't promptly punish. It is the opposite of being short-tempered. So we think about long-tempered. We know what short-tempered is. It's somebody who flies off the handle at a moment's notice. As Christians who love, we are long-tempered. Enduring love in the face even of provocation. I am not going to be drawn into a useless fight where I'm going to lose my temper. And the reason why is because I love you. You probably shouldn't say that in the moment. That's what should be in your head, right? I am not easily provoked. Instead, I suffer long because I love. And then number seven, love thinks no evil, the New King James says. Others say keeps no accounts of evil or of wrong suffered. The idea is not resentful. Uh, And the opposite of that, I believe, is believe all things. And the example that we'll use comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, If you'll turn over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Apparently, this was actually going on in the church in Corinth where they have division, they have these quarrels, they're arguing about things, and it's not always spiritual things, sometimes it's physical things. And so to resolve these conflicts, they were suing one another. (laughs) They were going to court and trying to let the, the Greek authorities take care of these fights that they had among them. So Paul addresses that. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Now therefore, is it, all, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. And then he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he places these folks, these kind of folks who keep accounts of wrong suffered, who think evil about their brother, they're right there along with fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. The way we think about and toward our brethren matters if we're going to be the kind of people who have godlike love. If we love that person, and we should, then we're going to do everything in our power to put the best construction on things until it is absolutely proven otherwise. Now, don't again, don't misunderstand me. This is not naivete uh, in the face of overwhelming evidence. But it isn't hardened cynicism either, where we always just expect the worst out of people. I'm hoping for the best, 
And even if I'm preparing for the worst, I am open to the possibility that things could be different, that we can work things out, because I believe all things. I think it's easy to lose that. Um, I'm, I'm a naturally optimistic kind of person, uh, but over the course of your life, you see enough to where I think sometimes this world, this world undermines that kind of uh, hoping for the best, believing the best in other people. And in those moments, what I try and do and try and remind myself of is, number one, the love of God, who believes and sees the best in me. Even though I've failed, even though I've fallen short, he still believes that he can use me in his service. And number two, we dwell on those negative examples of when people have let us down, uh, where we believe the best and they prove to be the worst. And yet, can't we all think of the opposite of those people who had every reason to fail, and yet by the grace of God, they were able to succeed in his service and in his kingdom. If we're going to love, we're going to have to believe all things. And then finally, number eight, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, it rejoices in the truth. And this is the most obvious, the most clear of all of these, and that's what led me down this path of making this list of these uh, two different uh, positives and negatives and each one corresponding. And so our final example comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. They were rejoicing in iniquity in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Read with me, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you're puffed up, there's that attitude again, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Drop down to verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole we are supposed to not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth. And that is what we are all asked to do with all sorts of different sins. Uh, this is where we are sometimes told that we aren't loving because we don't act like everything is okay with the sin. But the church in Corinth, that's exactly what they were doing. Oh, a man has his father's wife? Great, no big deal. We're accepting, we're loving, we're glorying in this. We rejoice in this iniquity. And what Paul says is, you might say that's love, but it's not really. Because love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. Uh, we don't go along with that kind of false teaching. That it doesn't matter what you do, God is still going to save you. And that's what some in Corinth were teaching even at this time as the beginnings of Gnosticism were coming into being. And so people, people that we do love, ask us questions like, why can't you just accept me the way I am? Why can't you just be happy for me? Why don't you want me to be happy? I just want you to be okay with this. Or even, why don't you love me enough to accept this, to leave me alone, to be okay with this, to just let me do this, whatever the case might be. You know what the answer to that is? Because I love you. And I, I can't be happy for you because... I can't rejoice in iniquity. That's not what God-like love is. We rejoice in the truth. We rejoice when someone is following Christ. That is real love as defined by God. 
And I will make whatever sacrifice is necessary from my end to give you every opportunity to know and accept the truth. Even if that means you're mad at me for a little while because I say you ought not be doing this. This, brothers and sisters, is what real love looks like in the real life lab of the church in Corinth. So where does that leave all of us? Well, we usually love lessons on love, don't we? We say we need more lessons on love. It's not talked about enough. In fact, I preached that lesson on love this morning. I had three comments after the sermon. We need more lessons like that. Okay, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Why do we need these lessons? For me? Or for everybody else? Because they don't love people like they ought to. For me, to love God more the way He loves and to love others more the way He loves. Or for all those people who haven't loved me the way they should. All those judgmental people who don't have any love, so I judge them. (laughs) If that's what's in our heart, we've missed the point of today's lesson. Please don't tell me that because I worked hard on these. Love isn't concerned with self. It's concerned with others and how we may do good for them. Lessons on love are not intended to get everybody else to love me the way they should. They're intended to get me to love everybody else the way I should. And what is that? if not a beautiful imitation of our God. That He begins, not with us loving Him, but with Him loving us. And with that tender, sacrificial, selfless, spiritual love, He seeks to draw us into the love that we ought to have for Him and for others. To love as God loves. And when it gets right down to it, every problem that we have can be traced back, at least in large part, to a lack of love. So I leave you with three questions at the end of this lesson. Three questions of self-reflection. Am I acting out of love? I'm doing all these things for God and others. Is the foundation of all of my actions and attitudes, is my inspiration and motivation love? If not, how do I grow toward that higher motivation in seeing how God has loved me so that I might love others in that same way. Number two, how can I show my love in a big way? What sacrifice or service can I perform to prove my love to others? Something I don't want to do, perhaps. Something that I don't have to do, certainly. But something I choose to do for those that I love, especially my brethren. Can you think about and strive to do something like that? But even more, number three, how can I show my love in a daily way to God and to my brethren what things should I be doing daily and where is the source of love to perform those daily tasks for my brethren and know this that God loves you and he's shown it by sending him you his son and you didn't deserve it but God was willing and he is willing now to save you because he loves you and if we can help you with that even this evening come now while together we stand and while we